Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight, and our guest today is Marie Jones, a paranormal explorer who has written and lectured widely about cutting-edge science, the paranormal, ufology, consciousness, noetics, and metaphysics. A popular guest on radio and TV, she was also the co-host of the Dreamland Radio Show. Marie is the author of a book called Science, P-S-I-E-N-C-E, How New Discoveries in Quantum Physics and New Science May Explain the Existence of Paranormal Phenomena. And she has a very fruitful collaboration with Larry Flaxman, with whom she co-authored many books, including The Deja Vu Enigma, This Book is from the Future, and the one we will discuss today, The Grid, Exploring the Hidden Infrastructure of Reality. Welcome, Marie. I'm delighted you could join me. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Well, now tell us a bit about your background. What made you decide to become an explorer of the paranormal? You know, people ask me that thinking that I have some wonderful ghost story from my childhood or oh I saw a UFO I don't know um I just was I from a very early age I was reading writing stories out in nature Uh, my father was a geophysicist so there were a lot of science textbooks around the house and Uh, I just kind of grew up with a love of science, but my mom was real creative and spiritual. And so I kind of got the best of both worlds, but I really honestly cannot point to a definitive experience that got all this started. I just sort of came out of the womb that way. I, I remember being really young and believing in ghosts and believing in UFOs and aliens and reading about them and, You know, probably at such an early age where I'm not quite sure where I was exposed to it. So it's just, I think, I kind of think that when you're interested in science, you naturally want to know what other realities are out there because you kind of sense that there's more uh, to than just what the five senses tell you. And I'll have to say that my dad... um, Being a scientist, being in the hard sciences, the earth sciences... He was actually really open to the paranormal, and he loved the subject of UFOs. And I grew up in a household where my dad would get together with his colleagues who were also very brilliant scientists in different fields, and they would sit around the supper table in our kitchen back in New York, smoking and drinking beer and playing cards and talking about UFOs. <laughs> so uh, just it was uh, an early exposure mm-hmm. and one that stuck with me throughout my whole life. Well, now you mention in your book uh, uh, sort of a an experience with your dad after he passed. Had you had any other paranormal experiences before then? Not a lot, and that makes me really frustrated. <laughs> I don't know if it's because I have that side to me that's very left-brain analytical, uh, you know, scientific, show-me-proof. The experiences that I've had throughout my life have been very elusive. Um, I've had more experiences that you might call metaphysical in terms of getting that you know that sort of sense of of being able to see 
beyond the five senses, um, experiences that I've had during meditations where I felt really open and aware and that my consciousness was everywhere at once. I've had more of that kind of experience than anything that I might describe as paranormal. I ha- there are a couple of things that happened when I was, 14, we moved to California from New York, and one of the very first friends that I made was a girl named Carol. I won't say her whole name for privacy reasons, but her family was experiencing poltergeist activity, and these were good, honest people. They were Lutherans, and they had been asking the Lutheran church for help, but they couldn't get any because they didn't do exorcisms. They had no clue how to deal with this type of activity, and at the time, I was just such an avid reader and explore that I decided to do a lot of reading and see if I could help them. And I refused to stay overnight at her house, even though she kept asking me. But one night I did. And I didn't experience the flying objects that the family would in the den and, and eating breakfast. And all of a sudden I froze and I felt something literally move through me. I've never felt this kind of feeling before in my life. And even before I could say anything, Carol, who was sitting on the couch behind me said, did you feel that? And it was like, whoa. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, And then later in life, I remember walking into a Halloween party here in San Diego at a, at a big mansion and um, it was a big party and there was a room where they said, you know, we really don't want people to, to go in that room. So put your coats and purses in a different room. And I remember, of course, if you tell me not to do something, I'm I'm probably going to do it. I went into that room and was just repelled. I thought I was going to throw up. I just was repelled by the energy. Mm -hmm. And so come to find out later that supposedly that house was haunted and that in that room a murder had occurred. And so they normally didn't like people to go in there because you would have some kind Mm -hmm. of negative experience. And I didn't find that out till later. I had no clue. And then, you know, a few years back, I remember seeing something. Um, I was very involved with Mutual UFO Network because UFOs really are my first love, probably thanks to my dad and his colleagues. Um, I saw something that I couldn't explain, but I didn't necessarily see an alien craft. So my experiences have been elusive. They've been very enigmatic in that There was nothing in your face about them where I came face to face with a ghost or uh, you had an abduction experience or actually saw a craft land in a field. But it's been ongoing enough throughout the years where it's kept me focused on the understanding that there is more going on than meets the eye. So it's been sort of spread out enough to keep me interested. Mm -hmm. Now, you've been trying to understand the structure of the universe for such a long time. How did you come up with the idea of the grid? And how is that different from the field of Lynn McTaggart or Irvin Laszlo's Akashic field? It really is a similar concept. What Larry and I found, though, is that we've been working together for seven years. We actually met when I wrote the book Science that you mentioned, which was one of the first books on on the scene about looking at quantum physics and new science and even consciousness as ways to possibly explain paranormal phenomena. I say possibly because, again, we have no proof yet. 
And so that's how we met. He had read the book and he contacted me and we began to talk back and forth via email because he's in Little Rock, Arkansas, and I'm in Southern California. We became very fast friends, decided to start working together. And what we realized is that we've written seven books together. And over the course of the researching and writing and talking to people and speaking and doing radio and what have you, we felt like there was a sort of culmination of everything that we were writing about. And that was this. We write about the paranormal. We write about the unknown. But with the understanding that we don't even really know what reality is. And until we really do, it's going to be very difficult to understand the paranormal, other realities. And we kept envisioning in our minds, uh, you know, Lynn McTaggart's book was instrumental to my understanding of how reality works, as were numerous other books. <clears throat> but what I felt was missing was for our readers a really good visual this is a hidden infrastructure, but we wanted to give a visual that people could actually wrap their minds around that might give them an idea of what reality might really be like. And we came up with the idea of a three-dimensional grid because you've got all the different levels of a grid. It's almost like a skyscraper if you were to take away the, the you know, brick the front and just see the, um, the, the construction itself behind that, see all the metal rods and the different floors that are being put in so you've got different levels of reality and you've got connectors between those levels so we wanted to know okay we can pretty much assume that the fact that people have different experiences whether we're talking dreams uh seeing a ghost psychic abilities remote viewing meditation going into altered states of consciousness we are experiencing different realities all the time. What are the connectors between those levels? What are the triggers? What are the things that happen both environmentally and physiologically that sort of have to align perfectly to allow us to experience those other levels of reality, as we like to call it, walk the grid? And I think when you present a, a really good visual to people, they have a much clearer understanding of the concept that you're presenting. So a lot of the readers really responded to this idea of this big three-dimensional grid that we exist within and sort of going up and down and across to the different levels via these connectors. And that really just, uh, it, it's work in progress. I hate to say it's actually that it's a culmination because we're still working on a lot of the details, but it really just sort of made sense to us. That, and then we had other people contacting us saying, oh, I've seen the grid in my meditation or in my visions or in my readings. I've actually seen the grid. And I was like, oh, okay, so this concept is, it's sort of, maybe it's archetypal, who knows, but it's something that our subconscious gets, it understands. Mm -hmm. So how do matter and energy um, traverse the grid or operate within it? Well, the great thing about things that occur at the quantum level 
is that they can do things that we, you know, haven't quite figured out how to do at the grander, more cosmic scale. And one of the things that really fascinated us with the grid concept is that at the most fundamental level, reality is not beholden to the rules and limitations that we seem to think apply to us on the grander scale. And and a good example of that might be that right now I'm sitting on a chair. I'm sitting on my desk chair and it's solid. Well, it feel, you know, it's holding me up. It's holding up my weight. The thing is though is that at the subatomic level, it's not solid at all. It's a bunch of particles moving in and out and interacting, but there's a lot of empty space between them. There is no such thing as solidity. We are not solid, yet we think we are because we feel that way and we look that way. We're sort of, uh, we, you know, we, we sort of operate from the five senses again. We forget the fact that there is a, another fundamental reality going on. So when you start to look at the way that energy and matter behave, especially at the subatomic level, it becomes very paranormal. It becomes very metaphysical and spooky because energy is able to do things. It's able to behave in ways, matter, you know, Particles are, are able to be in two places at once. Particles are able to go into the future, to go, we're able to influence the behavior of particles just by the sheer act of observation. And all of that seems like stuff that you would read in science fiction novels, but it's the reality at that level. So we yeah, like to, we like even to. Even Einstein's called it uh -huh. spooky action at a distance. Yeah, and he didn't believe it was true. <laughs> and, you know, shortly after he died, of course, <clears throat> other people took his work and ran with it and, and showed that it indeed was. But I think it's just really hard for us to get that because we're so focused on the bigger scale of existence. And yeah. I think we can be fooled by that. Well, certainly um, many teachers and, and authors have been writing about the, 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 the wave-particle duality and experiments right. and, and the effect of the observer. So um, how does that collapse the wave function? How, how do you understand it? You know, it's funny. I remember reading a book by Dr. Wayne Dyer. I, I absolutely adore his work. And he said something that, is one of my mottos to this day, that what you focus on expands. What you focus on becomes your reality. And he had written a book called The Power of Intention and talked a little bit about quantum physics and the fact that the an observer, we cannot have a particle, we cannot know the position of a particle and the momentum at the same time. It's impossible. Because the minute you fix a particle, you, it loses momentum. The minute you look at momentum, in order for you to observe that, you're fixing the particle into one place. So we can't do that. The way that we can get something to become manifest, the way that we can turn something from nothing is to collapse that. Because particles are both particle and wave until they're observed. And, the, and what happens is when you observe it, and I'm not just talking about human beings, observation can take the form of any kind of measurement device. 
uh, because what it does is it fixes it into a particular position and thereby the particle becomes real, becomes a physical manifestation. It's no longer a wave of potentiality or possibility. So for, for people to kind of apply that maybe to a grander scale, does that mean that our entire reality, whether we're talking individually or collectively, because we're all buying into a collective reality, is the result of observation of particles and stopping the wave function, giving them a particular position, giving them a particular form, and then ignoring all the other potentialities that could have occurred uh, which leads to the multiverse theory. If you're going to collapse the wave function of a particle, there's also the understanding, the possibility, the theory, whatever you want to call it, that you're fixing it to a position. But at the very same time you do that, another universe opens up or branches off in which that particle is not fixed, in which a different observation may fix it to a different position. And you start to realize that if that's the, the case, we're focusing our attention on very specific things and accepting them as our full, as the full reality, while ignoring the fact that every other possibility exists out there too that we did not focus on, that we did not collapse the wave function of. Mm. Now, you described an experiment at the University of Colorado and the National Institutes of Standards and Technology that you said may blow the whole notion of quantum limitation out of the water. I didn't quite understand it from your description, but you, you kind of indicated that it was really important. Can you explain it to me again and tell us why it is so important? Okay, let's see. It was the two mirrors with a little drum. (laughs) Oh, this was, yeah, okay, so this was in Science Magazine in in 2013. Um, Trying to find a simple way. I'll I'll explain it from the book in that there was a tiny drum that was placed between two mirrors, and it was illuminated with a laser so that when the mirrors were shaken, it became clear that the effects of the uncertainty principle of quantum physics, which states that one cannot measure both a particle's momentum and position at the same time, which we just discussed, was present. But what this proved, because this wasn't happening at the quantum scale, it was happening in a little bit of a larger scale, is that what works at the quantum level might actually be extrapolated to the cosmic level as well. The problem with physics for so long has been that you can look at things that happen at the quantum level, but you cannot apply them to the grander classical level. Physicists have been in search of the theory of everything that would do that. And nobody seems to have been able to find it. But this particular experiment showed that if you, that you can actually do something at a little bit of a bigger scale. This was not a subatomic experiment. This was done with little drums and mirrors, and it it worked. This same process worked that would have worked at the subatomic scale. So the idea being that can we now take that same experiment, do it on a bigger scale? Can we do it with bigger mirrors, with bigger drums, with bigger objects to show that the same type of 
uncertainty principle will work that worked at the quantum level. So this was one of the first, and I don't know to tell you the truth because things change weekly. If anybody else has done anything since then, I could probably Google it at some point. This was done in uh, February of 2013. Actually, that, this is when it was published. It was probably done a little bit before that. Mm-hmm. So the idea now, and one of the things that they're doing out at CERN in uh, outside of Geneva, Switzerland, at the Large Hadron Collider, is trying to do this stuff, too. They're trying to take quantum principles and see if they can be applied to a larger scale. And by larger scale, that doesn't necessarily mean as big as us humans. But even if you do something that is visible, that is a larger scale than something that is subatomic, which therefore is not visible. So I have a funny feeling that the metaphysical community and even ancient religions that talked about Things like the kingdom of heaven, which I believe was the zero-point field. Um, But I have a feeling that metaphysics, even though science has not really recognized it as being a a valid field of study, but I think that they, that field has taken this idea that what happens at the quantum level also happens to us as human beings. It also happens at the cosmic scale in terms of the universe and solar systems and what have you. I don't see why it wouldn't. To me, the fundamental ways that reality operates at the smallest scale, it makes sense that those same laws would operate at the larger scale. And I think that's above, so below. Yeah, that's right. That's the quest of the grid. That's the quest of these Mm -hmm. kinds of experiments. If you can do something a little bit bigger next time around and show that the same principles exist and and just keep doing it bigger, 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 I think eventually that theory of everything is going to fall into place. So how do you understand the nature of the zero-point field? I... That changed my life when I read Lynn's book. And the thing is, is that I had already been aware of this idea of a, I love the way a physicist, Hal Puthoff, explains it in Lynn's book as a grand ground state of, of reality, of, of fundamental reality. It's like the source. It's like George Lucas's The Force. <laughs> To me, I've always envisioned the zero-point field as being the most basic and foundational level of of existence and really like a sea of virtual particles that are popping in and out of existence. They haven't taken form yet because they haven't been observed. Their wave functions haven't quite been collapsed yet. But once they are, they can become anything from a chair to a dog to a, a, a computer to another planet. And so it's that source that, it's funny because I mean, I hate to refer to it in religious terms, but it's almost a God source in a way. It's creative, it's generative, it's uh, foundational. Everything comes from it, everything returns to it. There's no sense of time. Why would there be? Because the entire landscape of time exists within this field. And again, the reason why Larry and I expanded that into a, a more 
of a grid visual is because we wanted to show people the possibility that all these different levels of reality, there may be infinite levels for all we know, have connectors, they have levels. And maybe when we dream, we're on level B. And maybe when we have a psychic experience, we're on level F. And, you know, some people have really amazing paranormal experiences and they may be on level Z, but there's connectors. There's ways that we're able to access those levels. And I think that we do it sometimes uh, involuntarily. And I think sometimes we can practice different techniques that allow us to do it voluntarily. You describe uh, quite a number of different connectors, as you call them. Can you uh, give some examples? That was one of the really tough things because we always felt like, okay, you know, why does somebody easily... See, see a ghost, let's say, or have a psychic experience or seem to be really adept at something like remote viewing, the ability to, to see things at a distance or, uh, and why do other people not have a psychic bone in their body? <laughs> and what we started to look at was the fact that, well, first of all, there, our own physiology has a lot to do with this. And I think that that's been one of the most ignored aspects in the paranormal field is that people are so focused on the external manifestations, whether we're talking about a psychic event or a poltergeist activity or paranormal or somebody, uh, you know, going into an altered state of consciousness and having a vision of a future event, precognition, what have you. So much of the focus has been on externals. Not enough has been on what our own bodies have to do with it. So we looked at a couple of different things. We looked at human consciousness. Obviously, obviously, our consciousness is the quote-unquote observer when it comes to collapsing the wave functions that are occurring in our own lives and creating our individual and collective realities. I think human consciousness is not just a connector between levels of reality, but a driver a driver of experiencing those levels of reality. We can alter our state of consciousness at will. We can change our brain waves at will and have different experiences of other realities. Another one that Larry and I found, we wrote a book called The Resonance Key a few years ago, and we were absolutely fascinated by the fact that vibrational frequency and matching the vibrational frequency of thought and intention and consciousness to an external force or uh, reality could possibly allow you to then experience that reality. So that was another connector that we looked at. But we went a little bit deeper, too, into trying to find out what it is about human physiology that might be interacting with environmental forces and aligning perfectly to allow people to experience other le- experience other levels of the grid. And when I talk about physiology, I'm talking about things like brain chemicals, hormones, um, uh, even what you've eaten, prescription drugs you've taken, 
what we started to realize is that certain types of people seem to have more experiences of other levels of reality than others. And it doesn't have anything to do with belief, which we thought it would. It has so much more, we think, to do with what's going on in our bodies and also what may be going on environmentally in terms of weather, uh, you know, barometric pressure, the presence of water, um, seismic activity. We were putting all these different clues together to try to figure out why you could have a group of 10 people in a location and five would see a ghost or an entity and the other five would see nothing. You know, what's the deal? Are they, are they lying? Is there nothing going on? Um, you know, what is the difference between these five people and those? And we began to realize that the human body is such a huge key. It's such a huge connector. If we could figure out what brain chemicals, what hormones are involved, what the balances need to be, we might actually be able to create paranormal experiences in people that have never had them before. Well, there's this whole range of, um, I guess you'd call them drugs, uh, called entheogens, which oh, absolutely. allow people to have this divine experience. Right, right. And, you know, DMT is, is one of those, mm-hmm. but we've got a little bit of that in our bodies. And that was another thing we thought of. Well, there are external ways that you can experience other levels of reality. You can use the uh, hallucinogenic drugs and mushrooms and all kinds of natural ayahuasca and peyote, (coughs) excuse me, but you can also not have to do that. You can meditate. You can do chanting and shamanic drumming or anything that sort of puts your mind into an, or your brain waves into a different state. Uh, I think dreams, whenever we dream and I, and I'm, starting to see more and more studies come out that are saying, you know, gee, we thought about dreams the wrong way all these years. We were thinking they were our subconscious kind of mulling through the day and and symbolically telling us what we needed to know. But you're hearing more and more about people who think that dreams may be a doorway to other realities and how the experiences that we have in certain dreams, especially lucid dreaming, are so realistic excuse me, that our brains and our bodies don't know the difference between what's happening to us in that dream and what's happening to us in the waking state. That's how realistic they are. Mm. Could we be experiencing ourselves in a parallel universe, in another timeline, in another reality? Um, Other ways, uh, you know, people talk about getting into the zone, whether they're running or doing some type of repetitive motion. I think there are a lot of ways other than taking drugs that you can experience the different realities of the grid. I think sometimes they happen when we least expect them. I think deja vu is a perfect example of that. Uh, There's been a ton of scientific research into deja vu, and we still don't know what triggers it. We know how to trigger it. We know how to trigger deja vu in a lab, in a a clinical setting. We know the parts of the brain that we can stimulate, but we don't know how it happens when people are just out and about in a natural setting. Is there something going on environmentally that's aligning with their physiology at that particular moment to cause them to have a deja vu experience? Why do so many people, when they have deja vu, 
also have glimpses of <clears throat> either a, a past life experience or we had a number of people tell us about precognitive events that they saw during deja vu that later came true. Mm-hmm. And you you describe um, a lot of reports of out-of-body experiences. Um, actually, th- there was a really interesting um, theory that you uh, described um, put forward by Stuart Hameroff and, and Sir Roger Penrose relating to microtubules in the brain that in I found brain. really fascinating. Could you share that with our listeners? Oh, gosh, you're asking me to go back now and remember what they Okay, well, isn't it, it, that awful? It, I, basically, he was talking... I have to go back and reread. <laughs> I know they did uh, experiments using what are called microtubules in the brain that operate very similarly to... Uh, they They sort of act as indicators of quantum superposition in the brain and what happens when uh if i believe if i'm getting the right experiment here they are responsible for collapsing a particular wave function into a a fixed reality well, uh, the, the the one I was referring to um, was in relation to out-of-body experiences where they thought that the microtubules were, would empty out as the individual's consciousness left the body. Oh, that's right. Okay. And then would refill um, if the individual came back into their body either uh, after an NDE or, or just an out-of-body right. experience. Right. Yeah, but what's so fascinating about the out-of-body experiences is that when they come back, they actually have reports of things that they could not have known otherwise. Right, right, right. So it's more suggesting that there is, as it was referred to as non-locality of consciousness, that consciousness does not exist, the mind does not exist or reside in the brain it does not pass away when we die. It is an external. I, I think also there's a holographic element to it that consciousness may exist outside of us or that we can at least project it outside of us so that when our bodies die, the consciousness continues on. During a near-death experience, the body may be dead for a while, but there is a part of us that continues to be aware uh, people during o- OBEs and NDEs have reported being able to hear what doctors and nurses are saying in the hospital room and then when they're revived they repeat that and it, and it was all accurate it was all true people who have out of body experiences often can accurately report what somebody else was doing it's almost like remote viewing they can uh, see something that's going on at a distance where they're visiting where their consciousness is visiting, and then later on find out that that information was purely accurate. So it does seem like there is a part of us that is maybe that that these tubules are sort of locked into the zero-point field, that, that field of information, and that our physicality, even though we think it's limiting us, is not necessary for that part of us to continue on or see outside of the limitations of the body to tap into the zero point field to access other information and then you know 
bring it back to us when we're revived. And it's, it's not proof again. I don't know what anybody's ever going to accept as proof that we continue on after death. Uh, but it comes pretty close to a good scientific explanation for the fact that consciousness does not have to rely on the, the physical body to continue to operate. Yeah, I, I suspect that one of your biggest challenges as a writer and a researcher has been counteracting the charges of junk science and pseudo-mysticism. How do you go about that? Well, I just like to remind people... <laughs> That the, even if we look back at ancient religious writings, there are so many clues in those writings to some of the very scientific, cutting edge scientific discoveries that are being made today. If we look at primitive tribes, like I love the, the West African Dogon. If we look at these primitive people who have no access to scientific manuals and journals and computers, but their, their cosmology and their worldview mirrors what we're learning about, not just quantum physics, but classical physics as well. How do we ignore the fact that metaphysical teachers throughout the years have been telling us that the focus of consciousness is critical to the manifestation of reality? When now quantum physics is telling us the same thing, that what the observer observes into a fixed position becomes the reality. But also at the same time, you have all the other potentialities that are still out there. Um, so I, I, I think it's just growing up with a scientist, you know, they want the hard proof. They want the repeatability. They want the scientific method to be applied perfectly. But what Larry and I have found is that when it comes to the anomalous, the paranormal, even the metaphysical, we might need a different kind of scientific methodology to work with because a lot of this is subjective, a lot of it is experiential, a lot of this uh, is not necessarily repeatable, and yet that doesn't mean it's not true, it's not yeah. real, it's not happening to people. So it might require a deviation from the same scientific method that is used by you know, hard science to apply to these more elusive more subjective sciences. Well, we see so much of this in medicine and in all of the sciences where any effect that doesn't, um, is not coherent with existing or accepted scientific principles is ignored, is put aside because they don't know how to deal with it. Right. Um, right. I remember. Uh, interviewing uh, an archaeologist years ago um, who told me that the British Museum basement is full of all kinds of artifacts that will never see the light of day because they're anachronistic. They're outside of their time and nobody can explain how they could possibly be found where they were found. Right. We call them archaeoenigmas. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what's really interesting? One of my favorite people... <laughs> was David Bohm, and he it really was considered the grandfather of quantum physics. And yet, 
if you read his books, they sound like metaphysical writings. And, and we love David Bone because in terms of this field or this grid that everything comes from and returns to, the idea that there is a repository that our consciousness may continue on and even after the physical body is gone. You know, he really had some groundbreaking thoughts about different levels of reality. One, you know, the explicate order of reality obviously being the physical manifest seen experienced order that we're all so used to and get so, I think, blinded by. Um, and then he talked about the implicate order of reality, which was where what you saw, what the explicate, what was made physical, the process of manifestation actually occurred in this order. It was a hidden, invisible, implicate order that was generative and creative. And then he also talked about a super implicate order that was sort of like an overseer that made the decisions and choices and observations of what the implicate would then make physical or make explicate a lot of people like to refer to it as sort of a god godlike order now this was a physicist recognizing that there were things going on to create manifest reality that operated on a hidden and invisible level and the way that he would describe them was almost religious in a sense you know that you have an idea that is then put into a sort of generative motion that then creates the physical reality. I always like likened it to the Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have Father, which is the God, the sort of super implicate decider and chooser. You've got the Son, Jesus, who is made manifest, the physical manifestation of what God chose to create on earth. But you've also got that middleman, the Holy Spirit, and that is that implicate generative creative action state where the process occurs by which you take nothing and get something. And I always thought that, that was absolutely fascinating that this physicist was talking like this. Because <laughs> to me it sounded religious and metaphysical. So would you think that intelligent design is uh, a possibility? Do you, do you think the grid is organic, alive, conscious? I Yes. And when we refer to intelligent design, you know, we always want to be careful not to go by some of the more recognizable labels that people place on that of a of an old man with a beard up there making decisions. Intelligent design implies that there is some force that is able to create order out of chaos that is, that is decisive that is observant that is con just as conscious as we are you know it could be the grand state of consciousness that itself is evolving as it creates sort of like a snowball uh some people liken it to a big giant supercomputer which to me is a little harsh, <laughs> you know, a little too technological for, for my liking. But I think intelligent design, I think it's kind of obvious that it's present in our realities because our sheer existence is because of such precise, sophisticated mathematical ratios and equations that if they were tweaked ever so slightly in either the positive or negative, we wouldn't be here. I don't 
know that that's random. If it is, it's, it's insane to me, but it just makes more sense that there is some kind of intelligent conscious force, not human. I think that's where we, we run into trouble with religions. Uh, and I think that it's evolving and, and its consciousness is evolving just as we are individually which is why things are always changing, always in flux. And I believe that our consciousness as a society is becoming more and more open to exploring possibilities like this. Have you felt that there's been a a quantum shift in um, openness to your ideas? Absolutely, and I think one of the reasons why is because there is this part of science now in the world of quantum physics and even theoretical physics and I think all sciences you know I I hate to to discredit any field of science because I love science I think that the the science and the paranormal metaphysics unknown are just two different ends of the same ruler And I think that they're starting to come together more in the middle because there's this realization that, hey, you know what? We're both talking about the same thing. We're just using different terminology. (coughs) Oh, excuse me. I have the feeling that the uh, connection at the fundamental level that you, you describe within the grid and and you extrapolate to the connection among humanity um, is really the important emerging reality for us to internalize and to realize the the connection that we have as human beings um, and the, the same reaction that you give to to physics and science you must understand that our experience of God is is also coming from our individual perspective. So I, I think that's probably one of the most important contributions of a book like yours. The whole, yeah, the whole point of this is that we're all on the grid. We're a part of it. We're all connected. <clears throat> there is no... The division that occurs occurs because of our five senses. But at that deeper, more fundamental level... There is no connection. I think that's something that quantum physics has really taught us, that at the most basic level of our existence as human beings, we're not solid. We're a bunch of interchanging, moving particles. We blend into the particles of everything around us. And it's the act of consciousness that really gives shape and form and focus to individual objects. But at that most fundamental level, we're all part of that sea of, of potentiality. We're all connected. We obviously know energetically that what we do influences the people around us because our energy fields are all interacting. We're all constantly uh, we're entangled. There's another wonderful term from quantum physics. We are all entangled with each other. The separation that we see is is really of the five senses. It's not the true reality at that more deeper fundamental level. So what are you working on now, Marie? Wow. <laughs> 
actually, Larry and I decided to do something fun in that we're taking the grid and we're writing a novel called Gridwalkers. And we, we always wanted to try this. We wanted to take some of the scientific research and theories in one of our nonfiction books and novelize it into a story where we could kind of show it in, in action in a, in a fun fictional story. So that's a little bit different. And we also have a book out called Viral Mythology, which is about how information and ideas went viral in ancient times without cell phones and computers and social networking. So that was a really cool, interesting book to write. The original Jungle Telegraph. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) And um, is there a website where people could find out more about this? Yes, there is. They can go to www.paraexplorers.com, P-A-R-A, paraexplorers.com. And uh, my personal website is mariedjones.com. And find out what we're doing and what I'm doing and what we have coming up because we're always working on something. And And, um, is there like a community on paraexplorers.com? Not really. It seems like our community is on Facebook. We are big with social networking. So people can find us on Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and those places as as well. And we're really active. We have a Facebook page for Pair Explorers that's very active. So that would be the one to look for? Facebook? Yeah, yeah. They could look for just Pair Explorers on Facebook. Okay. Great. Well, Marie, it's been fascinating. I've been speaking with Marie D. Jones, co-author of The Grid, Exploring the Hidden Infrastructure of Reality. Thank you so much for being with us today, Marie. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Next week, our guest is going to be clinical psychologist Dr. Alan Botkin. He'll be discussing his book, Induced After-Death Communication, A Miraculous Therapy for Grief and Loss. And now we're going to close with our track of the week by Kaya called The Alchemist.
Alchemist from the album Born Under a Star of Change by Canadian singer, author, mystic, and dream interpreter Kaya. Kaya's website is ucm.ca. Well, that's our show for today. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you'll join us next week. In the meantime, you can visit our website, ncreview.com. So until next week, I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.